Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Eric Zhu, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Oregon. Eric has published fascinating work on how air pollution monitors work, or don't work, as the case may be, to detect harmful levels of air pollution in the United States. Using data from satellites and ground-based monitors, his work has uncovered how local actors, particularly local governments, may be manipulating air quality data to avoid penalties under the Clean Air Act. It's a mystery of missing data, and we'll seek to solve it in today's episode. Stay with us. Okay, Eric Zhu from the University of Oregon, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. And, you know, I've been a fan of your work for quite some time. It's really great to meet you. And we're going to talk about some really fascinating work you've done on air pollution and uh, monitoring of air pollution. But before we do that, can you tell us uh, in our audience how you got interested in environmental issues in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Um, yeah, I, w- I was thinking about this, and I think uh, I found it amazing that a big part of you know the way I got drawn into this is about people. And uh, so I was a research assistant to um, David Molitor and Nolan Miller at the University of Illinois while I was a student there. Uh, and these are just like people that are really smart, uh, my career role models. Uh, and so I worked with them. I really liked the topic. They were working on stuff uh, like, you know, the effect of ambient temperature and pollution on health, right? So they were working with Medicare administrative data. Uh, and, you know, that's honestly how I, you know, got interested uh, in the field. And then I think over the years, you know, when I uh, graduate, I go to Cornell Dyson and, you know, I meet people at Oregon as well. Uh, and conferences, like people show you that there are many more that you can do that haven't been done, things like that. And it's also a great community so I that I enjoy to be in. So I, I think a big part of, of that, honestly, is, um, is the people part. And then, of course, there's like you, you need to really enjoy what you do, right? So I think a part of that is just the fact that I come from China. And if you think about pollution-related issue, that was really first order. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's the main thing <laughs> that gets me going. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You know, it's, it's interesting. We, we've, we've had several guests in recent months who grew up, um, either in mainland China or in Hong Kong. Oh, okay. And, um, and every, every one of them has actually mentioned the air pollution issue, uh, in China as a motivating factor for, for their careers. So yeah, yeah. It was um, it was really bad. Like uh, if you think about like a ten or twenty years ago, like when I uh, grew up, I actually grew up uh, near our chemical plant where my grandparents work, and there's like a huge stack and chimney uh, just uh, I think a couple of miles away, and it was fun that uh, I I look at that stack every day. I didn't think of that as a problem. It's just like seems like very far away from me. Um, and now I think back, I think I got like respiratory issues when I was a kid, uh, and I. I'm pretty sure that part of that is attributed to to the proximity to the plan. But yeah, so it was a it was a huge problem. It's also like changing, right? Which makes it interesting that the government is kind of changing its attitude towards pollution regulations and how much pollution they uh, want to tolerate and things like that. So um, yeah, so it's a it's a big topic in China as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And where in China was it that you grew up? Uh, Shanghai. Uh-huh. It's a coastal city. It's like a big coastal city. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, Shanghai. I've heard of it. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I imagine we could talk about China, um, you know, for the next half hour. But, but we're mostly going to talk today about your work that's based uh, in the United States. And you have lots of cool papers, on lots of interesting topics. But as I mentioned, we're going to focus today on this issue of air quality monitoring um, and the way that companies sometimes behave strategically uh, and maybe governments sometimes behave strategically to kind of evade some of the monitoring monitoring efforts that the federal government has set up. Um, But uh, before we get into those details, I think it'd be really helpful if you could give us just kind of a baseline understanding of how air quality is monitored under the Clean Air Act in the United States and how that sort of monitoring regime might create some opportunities for companies uh, or governments to be strategic about this issue of pollution. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll say what I know. So I, I think the best way to think about it is like, you know, every time you, you can pull pull up your phone, right? And then you click weather app and there's going to be something called the air quality index, right? So AQI. So it might tell you, for example, that the air quality in your city currently is like 50. Uh, it was like fine. Like it's a, you know, a green coat or something. And then the way that data it was kind of uh, obtained is from ground uh, air pollution monitoring stations, right? So these are just uh, think about that as a shelter. It's, uh, it has a fence around it, but it's a shelter with like air pollution devices, monitoring devices in it. Uh, and uh, so the way it works, for example, is that um, if people want to measure how much particle pollution is in the air, so what the device does is that it pulls air into it, right? And the particles get deposited on a Teflon filter. And then uh, a technician is going to go inside the shelter and take the take the filter out and do lab analysis and figure out how much particulate matter is on that filter and then they uh, uh, divide that by how much air has been drawn through um, the device to calculate like what's the concentration of pollution in the air right? and that data get kind of streamed then into your cell phone and so the so, so about the research on uh, air quality monitoring the stuff that I looked at. Uh, is the fact that, you know, in, in some places, uh, the the way they monitor air quality uh, involves like intermittency. So, for example, it's not true that everywhere in the United States that they monitor air continuously every day. So, a part of the paper is about the fact that in many places they uh, monitor PM the the way I describe it, right? Uh, in a once per six day basis, right? So it's like I monitor it today. I wait for five days until I do it again. Right, so you can see why they want to do this because first of all, like um, just the way I described like the monitoring, it was pretty costly, right? So you, you need to do lab analysis and there's going to be engineers and scientists involved. So uh, you want to save some cost. And on the other hand, you want to, you want to be statistically kind of representative. So uh, once per six day was pretty smart because if you do something on a per six day basis over the over the long run, you get uh, hopefully representative statistics because nothing else is really is really changing on a six-day basis, right? So if, if you do once per seven days, then you're always on Monday and Tuesday and, and Wednesday, and that's that's not what you want, right? So, um, and then regarding your question on incentive, and I th- so so I think one important part is that uh, the the Environmental Protection Agency, so the the government 
who oversee this process, also um, publish this uh, calendar that tells basically state and local government, and of course the the polluters that you know these are the days that we're going to do the monitoring or the testing, right? And so the information is uh, in public domain. So uh, as a researcher, you might you might wonder whether and an economist, right? So who think about incentives a lot, you might wonder whether that creates opportunity. An incentive for people to um, to to behave strategically in response to that rule. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just one quick clarification: you mentioned PM earlier, and um, that's particulate matter, and I think it refers to particulate matter that's two point five microns or smaller. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the PM two point five is technical word, but yeah, that's exactly what you said. It is. Yep. Perfect. So, um, so let's talk about this um, this first paper that you have called "Unwatched Pollution: The Effect of Intermittent Monitoring on Air Quality." So, exactly what we're talking about. Um, how do you investigate kind of whether companies are being strategic about when they pollute? Yeah. So, um, so just to be precise, the the paper actually doesn't directly look at companies. So the way that I did it is that I. Remember, there's, there's this like once per six day monitoring cycles, right? So, um, and the idea is that although the, the monitors are only operating once per six days, some of the monitors, uh, you know, we have like independent measures from the satellite that are on almost every day, right? So the satellites don't obey kind of ground intermittent monitoring rule. So the idea is to use a satellite measure of air quality and look at places that had monitors and compare days when the monitors are on versus the days when the monitors are off, right? Uh, and you know the reason I say it's not directly looking at firm emission is because this is looking at ambient air quality, right? So it's like air, con- you know, the condition of uh, air quality in the atmosphere rather than just like you know what's coming directly off of this deck. So I want to be careful there. But um, the thing that I discover uh, is that because you know we have this once per six day monitoring cycle, right? So you can kind of look at what the pattern looks like in a typical uh, kind of six day pattern, right? What you see is that the, from a satellite's point of view, air quality is pretty stable across those six kinds of days, except for a drop on the day when uh, the federal monitoring is kind of scheduled, right? And then to the extent, uh, like I said, that uh, there should not be any reason for for anything basically to exhibit a once per six day pattern, uh, we would think that this uh, differential levels in air quality is attributable to strategic polluter behavior. That's what the paper argues. Yeah. Yeah, great. And so, you know, like you just said a, a moment ago, you know, to enforce these Clean Air Act regulations, the EPA does not monitor. Uh, particulate matter coming out of specific smokestacks or specific right. industries or specific factories, right? So it's, it's an ambient measurement. So if it's an ambient measurement, why would or, or would any specific factory reduce its pollution on the day of monitoring? It's, it's sort of like it's a little confusing. And so you investigate some other explanations for why uh, yeah. this might be happening. What, what, what do you um, sort of hypothesize and then what do you find? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, so there's definitely this you know tragedy of the commons problem, right? So you have a lot of polluters. Why would they um, kind of coordinate? So I think the point, of, you know, one point that I try to make in that paper is if you think about the principal agent problem, right? So the way we think about it usually is like the federal EPA is the the principal, right? And then you have like 
that you know the one they regulate are like an individual plants. But uh, actually, if you look at the the structure of the Clean Air Act regulation, there's this layer of I think agents who are like state or county managers, right? So um, if so, the way it works is that if air quality in uh, the state or county's jurisdiction exceeds the regulatory standards, uh, the state and the counties also bear the cost of that. So I think that's important to to think about too. So one way I, I illustrate that uh, is I looked at the uh, the issuance of smugglers. So um, it's kind of an extreme example, but I think get at the point that I want to make, which is, so these are things like um, public warnings and things that state and local government can issue uh, to you know, ask people to, to reduce driving, you know, stay indoors, don't burn anything, right? So I think in, in, in California, it's called like spare the air. In Chicago, it's called like smog alerts. And if you look at, uh, so just look at the timing of when those uh, alerts are issued, right? Uh, and you align that timing with the kind of once per six day uh, schedule that I mentioned earlier, you can see like a pile up of issuance exactly on the day when the federal monitoring is scheduled, right? So on those days that uh, everybody knows that monitoring is scheduled, you have more warnings to the public that says, you know, encourage people to, to reduce emission. So I think that uh, illustrates to me that... Um, there is this kind of uh, principal agent problem where uh, the state, because they are bearing the cost, they also have the incentive to, to make sure there are quality and, and things are in check. And so when we talk about coordination, it's not just like among the plants. It might also involve uh, the people who, who also bear the cost, which are the, the state and local government. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to, to think about that, you know, those smog alerts going up and it maybe it's not because the air is particularly bad, but because, you know, local officials might want to avoid some kind of punishment that they get when the air is kind of at the baseline quality uh, that, it, that it might otherwise be. And bef before we go to the next question, it would be really helpful to know, um, you know, what are some of the punishments that state or local governments might face or the consequences that they might face if, uh, let's say, the EPA finds that they have particularly bad air quality on those monitoring days? Yeah, yeah. So I think the way it works, as far as I understand, is uh, that if, um, so let's say the, the area has a bunch of air quality monitors, and if the, the recorded data say that your air quality, the recorded air quality is above the regulatory standards, and then what the state have to do is they have to develop something known as the state implementation plan or SIPs, right? And then, uh, so actually every state have to develop that, but like if you are a non-attainment, if your state has a non-attainment county, then uh, your SIP is just going to be much more detailed uh, and has a lot more clauses and things that tells the federal government like exactly what you're going to do to bring air quality back uh, into uh, compliance, right? So is, you know, is, is, uh, are you going to do like permitting programs? Uh, like, you know, what kind of things you're going to do on for each plants that, uh, you can, you know, you can do to, to bring them back into compliance. And there's a lot of cost. Uh, there's a line of research, uh, in environmental economics that specifically look at this, right? So they found, for example, that, uh, when a, when a county got a non-attainment kind of status, right? It reduces, for example, the manufacturing uh, sector's productivities because they have to install more abatement technologies, uh, scrubbers, and things like that. 
there's labor transition costs, right? Uh, because like you know things are more costly, uh, and there's costs in the labor market too. And then also there is like very localized improvement in air quality, right? So there are research that found that uh, air quality appears to be differentially improving uh, near places that had monitors and things like that. So I think it reveals that it's pretty costly to the states to and, and the county government to have these kind of regulatory uh, violations status. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so interesting to, to think about the different actors here. Um, so let's dig in a little bit deeper on this issue of local or state governments behaving strategically. There's another really interesting paper you have on this topic that's called What's Missing in Environmental Self-Monitoring? Um, and it starts on a bridge in New Jersey. So let's all travel in our minds to a bridge in New Jersey in 2013. <laughs> so what happened on that bridge and uh, what happened to the air quality monitor that was near the bridge around the same time. Yeah, thanks, Daniel, for uh, for uh, for talking about this. Uh, it's it's a work in progress or like a working paper that we developed. Uh, that instead of looking at strategic polluting behavior, like the the paper I, I just talked about, but this one is thinking about strategic monitoring, which is more directly on the on the state and government side. So I want to mention this is a teamwork. So this is joined with uh, Yinfei. Mu. So Yinfei uh, was a uh, master's student at Oregon. She's moving to um, Johns Hopkins Econ to do her PhD. And also Ed Rubin, Ed uh, was my colleague, assistant professor at Oregon. Uh, he was like a, a Berkeley ARE graduate. Yeah, so, so, the, so the, bridge, uh, um, the bridge gate thing you mentioned, it was like a motivation to our paper. So this is an incident. I think back in September 2013. So um, what happened is that there was this traffic study that uh, that occurred on the Washington uh, Bridge, George Washington Bridge, that takes you normally from Fort Lee uh, in New Jersey to Manhattan. And on that day, there was like a it's like a traffic study. They said that uh, closes two of the three main lanes on that bridge and causes a massive traffic jam, a gridlock. And what's People later figure out it's not a traffic study. It was uh, a political retribution. So if you if you Google uh, Fort Lee Lane closure scandal, you'll you'll find Wikipedia that describe it. And the thing that we um, notice is that there was this complaint by environmental group and journalists who find out that um, there is this uh, Jersey City firehouse. There's a monitor uh, that the air quality monitors on the rooftop of that. Uh, a firehouse near the bridge that was inoperative. So it kind of, it was off for for extensive period of time. It kind of missed out the entire peak of pollution generated by the traffic jam, right? So that was suspicious to many people. Uh, and then many people petitioned the regional EPA to, to investigate this issue. Uh, and then they actually did investigation. And the result, uh, I think they say, is because of a... Uh, wireless router malfunction or some kind of equipment malfunction. Uh, so it's kind of weird because like we, uh, I don't think that's, I, I can't say precisely, but I think uh, that might not be the reason because like if there are multiple devices on the rooftop um, in that place. And it seems like the the, the PM monitors is, is the only one that's uh, that's down. Right. right. So, so just um, basically kind of like fishy, <laughs> fishy results. Yeah, it was it was pretty suspicious to some people. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so 
Right. So the basic storyline, if I understand it correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, there's this political fight. Um, you know, some lanes are closed down to create a traffic jam as an act of political retribution. And at the same time that that's happening, you know, mysteriously, this air quality monitor turns off. Um, and so you investigate whether analogous or some, somewhat similar issues or incidents have occurred in different parts of the country. And what do you find? Yeah. So, um, like I said, the motivation is really that we're probably never going to know what happened on the for that monitor in that incident, right? But it's possible uh, we found to to have some statistical evidence on whether strategic monitoring behavior actually occurred, right? So is it true that we actually observed that uh, the monitors are more likely to be down when the state and local government expect air quality to be bad, right? So the way we did the study is that. Um, I think the idea is simple. We are going to measure like uh, expectation of bad pollution using the the pollution alerts, like the warnings, right? So the way it works is that uh, state and local government they have like uh, these uh, prediction algorithm and models. These are numer numerical forecasting models that tells them like what air quality probably going to look like in the next couple of days, and they often issue alerts when they expect air quality to be bad. So we use that as an expectation and we look at monitors and say, okay, is it true that when the state and local government expect pollution to really deteriorate, you see that the monitors are more likely to be off, right? Or malfunction or something like that. Um, and we actually started with the the monitor uh, on the Jersey City Firehouse because like that was one of the monitors that we think are interesting. Uh, and actually, if you look at the pattern, uh, it, it seems true that, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the Fort Lee city issued about like 21 kind of these um, alerts across the, the, the years we study. And uh, on average, you look at the pattern, it's true that near the days that uh, the government issues alerts, you see that the availability of data, the PM 2.5 data starts to drop in kind of goes to the lowest point exactly on the day when the when the uh, when the alerts are issued right and then come back to the normal level so that's kind of the uh, you know one main picture that we show and then what we do is that uh, we repeat this kind of exercise along with some kind of statistical uh, ways to do inference and test that across all the monitors we can possibly test meaning that these are the monitors that are supposed to be on every day and uh, they are in areas that also have like pollution alerts. And we found, uh, you know, basically what we do is that we generate a list of monitors that appears to show similar behavior, right? So they, their data availability drops whenever kind of you see, uh, see and um, the, the local government expect bad pollution. Yeah. And is the hypothesis that you know, local governments or someone is is turning off these monitors or making them malfunction again for the purpose of avoiding violations under the Clean Air Act that would trigger, you know, these more detailed state implementation plans that have economic consequences. Is that what you yeah. suspect is going on? Yeah, that would be the assume or the implied uh, kind of mechanism or the reason, right? The alternative is, of course, is that there's something that's just mechanical is going to go wrong when the air quality gets bad, right, for those monitors. 
uh, we invested, investigated this in multiple ways, and we don't think that's uh, that's going to be the case. One of the reasons is just that the levels of pollution that we see in the United States are not going to be so bad to, to trigger, we believe, equipment malfunction. So it's it's very likely to be something that's uh, that's not mechanical. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it would be it would be a pretty serious design flaw if your pollution monitor failed to work when there was pollution around. <laughs> um, so uh, let's let's go to one more question uh, before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is kind of thinking about next steps or implications from some of these findings. You know, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, we have satellite data now that can do a good job. You know, monitoring wide uh, swaths of land. We have other tools like you know the Purple Air Network that I'm a part of. Uh, you know, you, you have hundreds and maybe thousands of monitors all around the country monitoring particulate matter data in real time. So are state or federal policymakers starting to, you know, use any tools like this or other tools to try to, you know, get around this strategic behavior that seems to be cropping up? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So like in the, in the previous project, like the first thing that we do every time we got this kind of results is that we actually talk to people in the EPA, right? And let them know that, you know, we have a set of findings that appears to be pointing to some kind of issue with the way that um, the monitoring is done. And uh, I think that one thing that's really important that I learned from the process is that uh, as researchers, we can kind of identify these issues and patterns, but uh, at the decision-making level, you never know, like, what kind of complications they face, right? So there are a lot of legal barriers and then practical issues that we are just unaware of. So I don't want to say that what is exactly is the government should do to, to erase that problem. But, but like you said, in the paper, we also propose ways that this thing potentially could be alleviated. Uh, so for example, so one thing that uh, I think a simple thing that we kind of propose in the paper is simply do not just ignore the data that are missing, right? So we think that the roots of the problem is that when the regulators calculate uh, how much pollution you have in your area, is that they only use the um, available data and just ignore what's missing, right? And when you do that, let's say you calculate an average, when you ignore the missing days, what you implicitly are doing is you're just imputing those missing days as the, as the overall average, right? And then the point of the paper is that that might be wrong because like if if missing or not random, then you're like underestimating uh, the pollution value. So one thing you can do, for example, you can you can impute those values with something that's more uh, probably closer to the truth, right? So you can use nearby monitors that are actually functioning. You can use like purple air, like things like uh, you mentioned, right? So these are kind of grassroots ways to, alternative ways to, to monitor air qualities. So figure out ways to, to impute those values to, to deter uh, kind of strategic monitoring is something that's useful. Actually, so if you, if you think about it, there are actually ways to do this, right? So the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, in their implementation of the asset rain program, so that was the cap and trade program for power plants to trade like, uh, you know, emission allowance for SO2, they actually have this very stringent rule that if your uh, monitoring rate, so this is a completely different context. So here the monitoring, we're talking about uh, continuous emission monitoring that a device installed on each stack, right? Then that measures, you know, exactly how much pollution you're emitting. 
And uh, so there, the rule is like if your data capture rate, right, so the, the availability of data falls below, let's say, 90%, what they're going to do is that they're going to kind of impute the missing value with the maximum, let's say, in the past couple of days or week or so, right? So that kind of creates a very strong uh, incentive for people not to kind of strategically miss monitoring. And the result appears to be good that... Uh, the data compliance rate in the asset rate program is is very high. I think it's uh, way above ninety percent or something like that. So, yeah. So um, there are definitely ways to uh, to to do data substitution and imputation to, I I believe, to deter this this type of behavior. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, I imagine we could have again many more questions and conversations about, you know, maybe like the barriers that the EPA faces to deploying some of these things, the legal and technical barriers. Um, but we are just about out of time. So um, so let's go to our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard lately that you enjoyed. It can be related to the environment or maybe not related to the environment, just kind of whatever you're interested in these days. Um, and I'll start with uh, a book that I am about halfway through. Um, it's from 2010, and uh, so so I'm a little late to it, but it's really fascinating. It's um, it, it's a series of um, essays and case studies about uh, Native Americans and energy in the U.S. Southwest. Um, the book is called Indians and Energy, Exploitation and Opportunity in the American Southwest. It's edited by Sherry Smith and Brian Frenner. And it's kind of an academic book, but it's it's really accessible um, to anyone, I think. And it tells just really fascinating stories about the relationship between different tribes in the Southwest and energy development, whether that's hydropower dams that you know displaced uh, some Native Americans, whether it's oil and gas development, coal mining, uranium mining, um, and it explores all these fascinating issues, and it really kind of gets at the complex issues of you know the benefits and the substantial environmental damages uh, associated with energy development in Indian country. So um, I'm really enjoying it, and uh, if you're interested in energy issues, uh, I think I think others would too. But how about you, Eric? What's on the top of your stack? So uh, I apologize that out of work, I I don't read that much of uh, environmental kind of books, but That's I would, okay. <laughs> but I would recommend uh, something that I found very cool uh, and important lately. So if you go to, um, so this is actually a a blog post, right? So if you Google uh, environmental and energy law program at Harvard Law School. And there's this blog post by Cynthia Giles. So Giles is G-I-L-E-S. So Cynthia, uh, she was assistant administrator at the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Enforcement and Compliance Insurance. Uh, so uh, she is currently a guest fellow at, uh, at Harvard Law School, the Environmental Energy Law Program. And she has this amazing blog post called Next Generation Compliance, Environmental Regulation for the Modern Era. Right, so it's, uh, it's a compilation of things, I think, that she, um, you know, the incidents that she saw while she was at the EPA Enforcement Office, uh, you know, incidents of things like pollution leaks and how uh, enforcement you know, what are the enforcement challenges that uh, the EPA faces? What are some of the problems and the remedies? 
And I think it's a really cool read. Um, so she got different parts. So for example, part one is like rules with uh, compliance built in. I'm just reading up the list. Part two is non-compliance with environmental rule is worse than you think. And then she also talked about things like climate change uh, in uh, a lot of water regulation, things related to that. So I would recommend it uh, first because it's a, it's a great read. And the other is I just think that there are so many, if you're interested in, let's say, research in uh, compliance and enforcement in environmental economics, this is like a gold mine that uh, I, I highly suspect that, you know, if a graduate student were to dig into like what uh, Cynthia had written, there's going to be multiple, multiple papers or research that can come out of it. Uh, so I, um, yeah, I, I would really recommend it to, you know, audience of this uh, podcast. Great. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. So anyone out there looking for, for new paper ideas, that sounds like a great way to start. Um, well, once again, Eric Zhu from uh, the University of Oregon, thank you so much for coming on the show today and helping us understand these really fascinating issues around air quality and monitoring. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.